The coronavirus pandemic has taken a massive toll on teens' mental health, and it's been devastating for those struggling with substance use. The number of teens who died from overdoses nearly doubled in 2020. That's according to data from UCLA. Over the past 30 years, a new type of school has tried to support teens dealing with alcohol and substance use. There are at least 45 recovery schools across the U.S. 5280 High School is the only recovery school in Colorado. It opened in 2018. Savannah is a junior at the high school. 1A producer Chris Remington spoke with her last week. In many ways, Savannah is your typical high school student living just south of Denver in Colorado. I love writing. I love journaling. I also love going stargazing with my friends. It's really easy to be myself with them and just, like, go all out and just really live life, especially being sober now. Savannah's path to sobriety has been a long and challenging one. Her struggles with alcohol began in eighth grade, and she soon transitioned to cough medicine and other hard drugs. After I, like, put the drug in my body, I mean, I, like, grabbed a hold of it because I felt something that I've never felt before, and I enjoyed it. I would just bring it to, like, school. I would do it during lunch period. I would do it during class secretly. I just didn't know what to do. I kind of just was so hooked onto the fact of those feelings that it just escaped me from reality that I just wanted more of it. And I just didn't know back then that that was a warning already. She found solace in writing, specifically poetry. This is a portion of her poem called The Addict's Disease. Hiding in the dark. Laying your hands on your face, eyes rolling backwards, having no memory of what happens when you swallow the unknown. Walking on the streets of the city where the bare feet of others who have walked. Everything becomes a blur and nothing appears. Having no energy to move, sinking into your bedsheets, closing in and staying quiet as a mouse. The demons that taunt- Savannah had many arguments with her parents over her struggles with drugs. They sought out a variety of different treatments for help, taking her to psych wards in 2021 and eventually to a teen substance abuse program. Unfortunately, that's where things escalated even further. When I first started smoking fentanyl was when I was like in the program. This was like in December of 2021 when I just didn't care. Like I didn't want to listen because I thought I knew all the answers. While she was in the program, she learned about 5280 High School. And needless to say, she was initially skeptical about it. I thought it was just really strange, and it kind of just made me, like, very wary of, like, what it is. Okay, give it a shot. Savannah started at the school in January of last year. Her initial experience was not ideal. She surrounded herself with students who weren't interested in recovery. She entered an outpatient program in March referred to her by the school, and that helped shift her perspective on life. I sat down with them one night, and this was, like, around 12 or something, and... It went for like two and a half hours, and I remember having this weird spiritual awakening about like wanting a higher power in my life, how I wanted God in my life, and like I just didn't want to live off my own self-will anymore. Savannah has been sober for the past two months. She found a close group of friends who've been incredibly supportive in her journey. I love recovery, and I love what they've, like everybody's done for me, and it's something that I'm super grateful for because I was like, they didn't give up on me. Even though they, I had gave them so many reasons like to give up, but they still didn't, and they just fought for me. They had my back, and they loved on me when I like couldn't love myself. She still feels the pressure around her each day, especially with the easy access to fentanyl in Denver. But she says sobriety has been essential for keeping a clear mindset when those cravings occur. I'm a lot more able to like feel my feelings 
and like be okay with feeling like my feelings like anger or like all these emotions swirling inside me and like be able to like talk to people and like work through them with my life now I'm like able to like feel better in my skin like be comfortable with who I am. That was 1A producer Chris Remington speaking to Savannah, a junior at Colorado's only recovery high school. After the break, we take a closer look at recovery schools and the unique challenges young people face when seeking treatment. This show is part of 1A's Remaking America project, looking at how our government is and is not watching out for everyone. It's a partnership with six public radio stations, including KUNC in Greeley, Colorado. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Let's get into the conversation by welcoming our guests. Stephanie Daniel is a reporter and editor with KUNC. She's been following 5280 High School and joins us now. Stephanie, thanks for being here. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Melissa Mouton. She's the founder and executive director of 5280 High School in Denver. Melissa is also in recovery herself. Melissa, glad you could join us. Thanks for having me. Now, we just heard Savannah's story. Melissa, what through lines do you see with her experience and the other students who come to 5280? Um, you know, Savannah's story is pretty typical. It's, um, you know, 5280 is not a school that kids or really their parents want their children to go to. And they, they typically come up to the front door pretty hesitant and even with a chip on their shoulder, like, uh, I don't need this or I don't want this. But then by the time they've been around for 30, 60 minutes, and they meet people that are showing them love, and they they really are able to see hope in their lives. And Savannah is just like so many other kids that we enroll that they, they just want hope and they want to grab onto something. And once they grab it, it's not always perfect after that, but they're on the path to a new life. Um, so I, I'm really proud of Savannah and where she's come. And it's been very up and down, but she seems to be on a really good track right now. And I'm super proud of where she's going to go. For people who are unfamiliar with recovery schools, how is a recovery school different from a typical high school experience? Sure. Um I think in a lot of ways, it's just the same. You know, we're a public charter school in Colorado, so they have the same classes, the same graduation requirements. Like, everything is pretty standardized for the, for the school piece. But what is most different is that the access to drugs at 5280 is just almost non-existent. Um, we do a really good job making sure that there are no drugs on campus. And I think that's what many high schools are struggling with is just the, it's really ubiquitous um, presence of drugs on campus. And if you're a young person who is trying to live a substance-free life and your friends are texting you and saying, hey, meet me in the bathroom or at lunch, they're pulling you outside and saying, hey, we're going to go smoke weed. Like, it's just almost impossible to maintain a substance-free life. I'm curious what it takes to keep substances off campus if they're so present in other schools. Well, the main thing is that the the people that attend 5280, they want to live a substance-free life. And so they're in a mix of people, a hundred other kids who are all living that same lifestyle. And so it's easy to kind of share your share your struggles and be vulnerable and be open because everyone in the school is fighting the same battles. And so sometimes when new, when we have a new kid that enrolls, they're not quite there yet. And they think, oh, despite what the school leaders are saying, I'm just going to bring drugs just like I always have for the past, you know, two, three years of my life. But when that happens, the other students 
report it to us because they don't appreciate that um, temptation being in the walls of the school. And so it, it's pretty it, it's pretty remarkable, but the culture of the school is one in which we want this to be a safe place because we don't want to go back to where we were. And when somebody comes in with drugs, maybe they're brand new or they haven't quite made that decision yet, then the rest of the student body really um, goes to bat and helps that person realize, like, listen, we're not going to judge you. If that's what you want to do, that's fine, but you just can't bring that into the school. Now, Stephanie, you spoke with Keith Hayes. He's the director of recovery at 5280 High School. We have a recovery program called Summit that we run every morning, and we talk about recovery and the principles of recovery and how we apply those principles in the classroom. How do we apply them at home with our families? How do we apply them in our everyday lives? Principles like honesty and hope and courage and integrity and love and forgiveness. And we talk about those principles and how we have to apply them in all of our affairs. Stephanie, how does the Summit program work? So there's a morning meeting. It's at the beginning of the day. I think it starts around 8.30. And students can share if they want to. The day that I visited the high school, um, the topic of the day was mental health and how mental health has affected their sobriety and how has sobriety affected their mental health. So I would say maybe eight to 10 students shared. And they ranged from everything... um, from, you know, doing drugs or alcohol because they were trying to escape to just, you know, starting to do it for fun and then that impacting their mental health. I'm, I'm curious, Melissa, how you track success at 5280. What, what does success mean for you? Sure. Yeah. And that that's a, something that's always evolving with our organization. But right now we track success on the recovery side through a couple metrics. One is really based on days of substance use and with the goal that those days will be reduced over time and we show strong success there. The second way we track it is um, we use an instrument called the GAINS survey and the GAINS is a statistically verified survey to use in adolescents. And so we track their mental health from when they enroll over time. And we show significant gains in that area too. So those are the ways that we track our recovery and our mental health success. And then, you know, we are a standard charter school in, in Denver, Denver Public Schools. And so our education metrics are just the same as any other school in the district. So uh, largely based on test scores, but also based on student culture, parent um, satisfaction, attendance, those sorts of things. Stephanie, 5280 is a charter school. How is it funded? Um, Charter schools are funded through the state. So they get state funding. And I believe 5280 was recently uh, refunded for another couple of years um, in the fall. So yeah, so they are public schools. Now, Melissa, since you're trying to provide additional services to students in in addition to, you know, just the regular educational resources they need, do you have to seek out additional funding to provide those wraparound services for students? Absolutely. I do a lot of fundraising. I think the public money that typical schools get, it only covers about two-thirds of our actual cost. So I have to raise the rest of that through private funds or grants. And, um, you know, we would be really great if if Colorado funded their schools fully. We would be sitting um, really great. But funding is always a constant challenge because our kids are so high needs. We need to raise a lot of money every year. Now, Stephanie, as we said, this is the only uh, recovery school in Colorado. 
what's the need in the state? So you mentioned in the opening that um, overdose rates had increased, had doubled from 2019 to 2020. That's something that we also saw in Colorado. And I think, um, you know, students are really struggling. And I think with the pandemic and um, mental health issues becoming more prevalent, I think a lot of teens will often turn to drugs and alcohol to cope. And so there is definitely a need to have more recovery high schools. And I know that's something that Melissa and her team um, field a lot of calls from other school districts within the state, as well as across the country, trying to figure out how they can set up a recovery school. Well, yeah, and Melissa, what is the demand like? I would think that you probably can't take every student who wants to be admitted or whose parents want them to be admitted to your school. Well, we actually do because turning somebody away is just not an option Mm -hmm. for me. Um, If a parent is seeking help and a kid is seeking help, we will find a space for them. So we're working on uh, expanding our facility and staffing, and we kind of grow our staffing in response to the demand that we face. I think the biggest need that's unmet out there is simply because they just don't know about 5280. Um, and families are often isolated when they're struggling with a, with a kid with substance use and they don't know where to go, where to turn. And that's part of the work that I'm engaged in now is like working more with community partners to make sure that when a family finds themselves in need, that there is a place where they can go and they know where to get help. We got this tweet from Brendan who asks, how do schools like these deal with students who are prescribed the same drugs that are used recreationally by other students? Is that something you've run into, Melissa? Sure, yeah. We have, um, our kids are on medicines just like um, any kid would. And so the school, how we deal with the medicines is our school nurse has to get a prescription from the doctor, and then we dole out the medicines at school on the at the time that they're prescribed. And so, you know, being a high school, it's there's a little bit less of that because most kids manage their own medicines at home. But um, it, we just do it just like any other school. And we actually have a couple kids who are on Medicaid. Uh, medication-assisted treatment, which is part of recovery from opioid. And so all that is done outside of school. It's not done in school, but um, it's it's, it's pretty much managed by the physicians and other medical professionals that the kids see outside of school. Let's bring another voice into the conversation. Joining us now from Boston is Professor John Kelly. He's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and the director of Massachusetts General Hospital's Recovery Research Institution. Professor Kelly, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Professor Kelly, what unique challenges do adolescents with substance use disorders face? Well, they face they face an up an uphill uh, uh, stream of um, use in the population. We see at this uh, age of development, roughly between the ages of thirteen and twenty five, the highest rates of alcohol and other drug use in the general population. So, when you uh, when you uh, meet criteria for a substance use disorder or, or uh, engage in heavy use as a teenager or a young adult, emerging adult. Um, and there's a need for treatment and recovery support services, the social environmental landscape is very challenging because we've got a lot of experimental use, a lot of heavy use that is non-clinical going on in the population. So it makes it very difficult for young people who do have these disorders early in their life uh, to gain the kind of support that they can gain, for example, from a recovery high school and the peers with lived experience there. 
Professor Kelly, when we think about the adolescent brain, we know it's not fully developed. So on one hand, you may have decision-making that isn't necessarily sound, but also how can substance use affect the brain development and maybe make it more difficult to get into recovery later in life? Yeah, well, there's direct neurotoxic effects, of course, of substances, and toxicity is in the dose. So if you are using a substance, this you know this is why we have um, you know uh, restrictions on use uh, uh, below a certain age. For example, with alcohol and and marijuana, where that's legal in st- uh, certain states, like in Colorado, uh, you can't use it until you're 21 legally. Now, there's a there's a there's a biological reason for that that we've actually learned more about is that the, the direct neurotoxic effects of these substances on the developing brain have a much greater impact uh, during adolescence and emerging adulthood. They also set the stage for later problems. They kind of set the the stage for uh, a long-term, potentially long-term clinical course of these disorders. And also they can turn on genes, what we call an epigenetic effect, that exposure at younger ages can turn on genes that would not be turned on uh, uh, if they were not exposed to substances at these younger ages. What this means is that they're not only at risk for these disorders themselves, but they also are at risk for other kinds of psychiatric illnesses that can occur as a result of toxicity effects from exposure to alcohol or other drugs. Stephanie, you spoke with Alex Castillo. She's 16 years old, and she's been at 5280 for the past couple of years. I've gone very up and down with how I feel about 5280 at first. I loved it because... A lot of my friends went here, um, and then a lot of them started leaving after they were no longer in recovery. And then I hated it. I had like a hundred something absences, like I just wasn't never here. And then when I went to treatment and I was gone for about three months, I came back and I was so excited. And since then, like, I really have loved 5280. Stephanie, what did you learn about the challenges for students like Alex and their path to sobriety? I I think sobriety is fluid and it's changing. And as Alexis said, you know, when she first started at 5280, she had a lot of friends that were going there and I think she felt comfortable with them. And then some of them, you know, left because they were in, um, you know, they were in a stable place and wanted to go back to a different school or maybe they graduated. And I think she started to lose um, that connection. And one thing that she told me that I thought was interesting is the school really talks about accountability and about students being accountable and, and buying in and wanting to be sober. And I think she just wasn't at that place and she didn't want to have that accountability. So as she said, um, she left, she went to treatment and she came back about three months later and she was ready. She was ready to do to do the work. Um, she has a really great support system at the school. She says that they um, that they're there for each other, and the students understand what the other one is going through. And sometimes it's not easy. Um, they hold each other accountable, and it, it's hard. But I will say that that. Um, she has a really nice community, and when I attended the summit, the morning meeting, one thing that was nice is that the students were there supporting each other and cheering each other on. And when a student said, I've got three months sobriety, people were clapping. And so it's really just a great community of support. It is, briefly, Stephanie, is there support or, or pushback to, to expanding this model in Colorado? Um, I haven't heard 
about any pushback. I think a lot of people probably don't know about recovery high schools. And as Melissa was saying, you know, the the word isn't really out yet about 5280. I believe the school started in the fall of 2018. So I think most people just don't know about it. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see sort of as the word spreads and other school districts start to look into how they can have a recovery high school. Because the nice thing about 5280 is that it is a public school, which means that it's a lot more accessible um, and a lot, and it's financially viable for a lot of families who maybe can't send their their child to a boarding school. That's Stephanie Daniel, a reporter with KUNC in Greeley, Colorado. Stephanie, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. More from you and our guests in just a moment. Let's get back to our discussion by adding another voice to the conversation. Joining us now from Westminster, Colorado, is high school junior Siddharth Naredi. He serves on the Colorado Youth Advisory Council, which works directly with state lawmakers. He's also a substance use prevention youth advisor for his local health department. Siddharth, it's great to have you. Great to be here as well. Uh, Professor Kelly, I I just want to remind people that the first recovery high schools opened in the late 1990s, and there are at least 45 across the country. What does the data tell us about their effectiveness? They've been around longer than that, actually. been around since the 1970s, believe it or not. first one started in Minnesota. Um, But um, their growth has been, you know, a little bit spotty. It's been up and down over the years, in part because of the lack of rigorous data and evaluation. Now, that has changed a little bit recently uh, in the last... 10, 10 years, there's been more rigorous data sponsored by data evaluation sponsored by the National Institutes of Health. What we've learned from more rigorous studies is that participation in recovery high schools for adolescents leaving treatment, so these are clinical cases who either go to a recovery high school or either go back to their regular school environment and home, those who uh, attend a recovery high school tend to have half the relapse rate, uh, as well as improvements in mental health functioning and school functioning as a result of participation. So that's good news. Siddharth, from what you're seeing in school and among your peers, how would you describe the scope of drug use and addiction among Colorado teens? Yeah, so I think it, it wouldn't be an under over-exaggeration to really state that substance use, especially amongst teens, um, is sort of a public health crisis. Substance use has become such a pervasive and normalized part of the community. In a sense, it's become a part of the very culture. You know, Substance use has become ingrained in the culture of our communities and within the culture of our schools as well. You know, of course, this is definitely reflected within the statistics themselves. However, something that these statistics don't really cover about youth substance use is that behind all these numbers, there are real people. You know, there are real people who are facing these massive problems that have to do with substance use. And the struggles that they face are immense. What do you think about the way non-recovery public and charter schools in Colorado are addressing this issue? Yeah, so I think the primary lens that most schools look at this is through a lens of substance use prevention. You know, this is an absolutely important and necessary step in preventing the first use of substances. However, a major issue with this sort of lens of prevention specifically is that this leaves out youth who are already using substances. You know, for example, when we have a youth who's already using substances, when their schools find out, oftentimes what happens is they face significant punitive measures. For example, they're suspended from their schools. And in addition, under the lens of sort of prevention, 
what these youth are given are essentially prevention resources. The resource that they're given focus primarily on prevention, which isn't really effective um, for youth who are already using substances. So not only does this uh, not help the youth effectively reach the resources that they need, but it also contributes to a larger sense of ostracization and shame and blame that's associated with all these punitive measures that schools take against youth here. Professor Kelly, how should we be thinking about treatment for young people differently than, than how we think about it for adults? Well, one of the big challenges we have with young people is that oftentimes they don't want to be in treatment. Um, so the level of the problems that they have suffered at a younger age, even though they meet criteria for a substance use disorder, are not the same as later uh, as they occur in adulthood. So it makes it very challenging to treat adolescents because they do not want, do not want to be in treatment, typically. Um, so this requires a different kind of approach. Typically, the, they come in because of schools, because of their parents, uh, are the prime movers in getting young people into treatment or the criminal justice system. Um, so we have to try and find ways to be innovative, to engage them so that they're likely to hear something that will be um, helpful to them as they uh, traverse the landscape of treatment and recovery. And that's the biggest challenge is that they just don't want to be there. So how do we engage them? And this is why we need more innovative models to attract and engage young people. So Darth, what got you involved in efforts to address uh, teen substance use in your state? Yeah, so I'd say the primary thing that really got me involved was my position as a youth advisor who works in a, a local county public health department. So within this uh, work, what I really see is kind of firsthand how the extent to which substance use has become a part of the community. And I've seen firsthand the devastating impacts that can really have on the youth. And so that sort of inspired me to push for a better solution, to push for a better way to help these youth who are struggling with substances. Professor Kelly, how important is peer-to-peer involvement when it comes to, to helping young people who are, who are dealing with substance use disorders? Well, what we're learning across the spectrum of age development is that peers are crucial. They can be really incredibly helpful to attract and engage other people who have the same disorder into remission and recovery. This has been known for over a couple hundred years in the United States, um, is that this lived experience that other peers have um, can role model. They can provide uh, encouragement, support, and lived experience examples right in front of the young teenager who is having the same problem. And it makes them understand that recovery is possible, that change is possible, and that it can look good, that it can look good on the other side of this disorder, that people can get in recovery and actually have a life worth living in recovery. And that's something that young people When they experience that, as we heard with Savannah, when she explained her own experience with Recovery High School, seeing other other teens in recovery was extremely helpful to her in attracting and engaging her in the process. Hey, Professor Kelly, how how far has our understanding come of what works, especially when we're talking about young people and substance use disorders, and what doesn't work? Well, we found some some things that work. I think a lot of the things that are inherent in uh, recovery high schools, that is to say, two fundamental psychological principles we know are involved in drug use and misuse, which is stimulus control 
uh, and contingency management. These are two principles, universal uh, principles, which are uh, applied throughout different kinds of treatments for substance use disorders in adolescents as well as adults. Now, what I mean by that is that stimulus control means removing occasion of exposure to alcohol and other drugs. Now, these environments, of course, do that, as we've heard already this morning, is that young people are... Uh, in a therapeutic environment where alcohol and drugs are not present and it's not part of the culture there. Um, and in, importantly, so, and this is one important feature of all treatments for substance use disorder as well as for young people, stimulus control, trying to remove uh, the temptation or the exposure to these substances. The other thing is what we call contingency management and this is the contingent reinforcement um, and reward for uh, behaviours that are associated with good health and functioning. In this case, it's removal of the substance and replacement with other kinds of activities and behaviours which will support the young person's recovery and remission and mental health. Uh, so the, the, the strong continued support, social support and encouragement, cheerleading, accountability, as we've heard, are crucial in any element of substance use disorder, but particularly crucial for young people who are swimming upstream against a tide of occasional use among their peers who may never become uh, addicted. Uh, but these young people who have fallen into addiction at a younger age need that support. So, Darth, as part of your work with your local health department, you helped create a presentation for educators focused on destigmatizing substance use. What did you want them to take away from your presentation? Yeah, so I'd say the primary thing to take away from this presentation is the, one of the best ways to destigmatize you know, substance use is to reform the language that we use when we have conversations about it. So, although this may seem superficial at first, Ultimately, by changing the language that we use in these conversations about substance use to language that isn't blaming, in a sense, this forms the foundations for a healthier conversation. And this allows adults specifically to reach youth who are using substances far better than they can um, with other sorts of language. And secondarily, I think another thing to emphasize here is that it's important to come from a place of understanding and come from a place of compassion. You know, substance use is something that's very hard. And for every single youth who uh, struggles with it, they have so many parts of their lives that are intertwined with it and so many factors that have led them to do it. But Professor Kelly, what should we be thinking about when it comes to that intersection of mental health and substance use disorders, especially for young people? Yeah, well, these, you know, there tends to be, especially among young people, this higher density of, of challenges and problems that they're um, faced with. What we'd see with people with young people with substance use disorders, we see also a very high occurrence of comorbid, uh, co-occurring mental health problems and vice versa. Among those with a primary mental health problem, we also see lots of substance use. Um, so it's very important clinically that we attend both of those together uh, with young people and we do that clinically. There are lots of protocols in place to address both of those psychosocially through proper, assessment, proper assessments as well as psychosocially and through medications. And then also to address them not just clinically but on the recovery support services side. So this is after acute stabilization. Once we've managed to stabilize a young person, they're feeling better, they're doing better. How do we support? How do we provide the scaffolding that can support them over the long term? Because this is a long game, not a short game. We're not talking about four weeks or three months. We're talking about potentially years, if not a lifetime, that they need to attend to these problems and challenges so that they can be successful in their life. Because this is the leading cause of 
disease, disability, and premature mortality among young people, alcohol, other drug use, in middle and high-income countries like the United States, it's the top cause of premature death, disease, and disability among young people. So this is the top public health problem, particularly in this age group. So we need to address these things early on and provide the scaffolding long-term that things like recovery high schools and other kinds of uh, uh, mutual help support groups and um, alternative peer groups can provide. Siddharth, just at a basic level, what kind of substance use interventions would you like to see in all Colorado schools? So I think the key word to really focus on there is intervention. That's a need that we really see in Colorado. With so much focus on prevention, intervention programs are essentially left in the dust, and we need to focus more specifically on those. And so on the Colorado Youth Advisory Council, one of the uh, bills that we're currently pushing through the state legislature is focused on this by um, creating a universal Um, model for intervention that can really be implemented in schools all across Colorado here. Professor Kelly, from a policy standpoint, what new policies or changes in policies do you think could help schools better address substance use in teens? Well, I think one of the things that is happening and has been happening for the last several years now is this focus on on young people and on um, services, recovery support services. Uh, there's been an increased recognition that we need not just acute care stabilization, but we need long-term scaffolding and support services that can help young people. I think we're starting to turn the corner on this by recognizing that these tend to have a chronic course and that we need to provide uh, services that can uh, attend to that. Um, so from a policy perspective, there's been, been a much greater emphasis on young people and also providing um, a longer-term services that can support recovery for young people. We're just starting to turn the corner on this now with greater funding, uh, and I'm hopeful over the next 10 years we're going to start to see greater evaluation of the implementation of services as well as more innovative services for young people. We've, we've kind of lagged behind uh, with young people, we've lagged behind though uh, the, the kind of research and evaluation that's been done with older adults. We've been blind, a little bit blind to young people, despite the fact that these disorders onset during adolescence and emerging adulthood. Uh, if this was any other illness, we would be intervening at a much greater um, uh, level of vigor uh, uh, if we were treating another illness. So there's the stigma behind this as well. That's John Kelly. He's an addiction psychiatrist and researcher at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. He's all, he also teaches psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Also with us was Siddharth Naredi. He's a youth advisor for his local health department and serves on the Colorado Youth Advisory Council. He's also a junior at Peak to Peak High School in Westminster, Colorado. Thanks to you both. Today's producers were June Leffler and Chris Remington. Amanda Williams edits our Remaking America project. This show was originally broadcast from Michigan Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. This is 1A.